Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the December 29th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Vaughn Rapadahana, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Taki Kupu Anake, or Only One Word, and my poem, Significance. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of December 30th. On Monday, December 30th, from 6 to 7.30 p.m., Phoenix College and the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting their Right Here, Right Now defamiliarization as creative technique with Cody Wilson. This will be taking place at Changing Hands Bookstore in Phoenix, which is at 300 West Camelback Road. On Wednesday, the 1st of January, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., Equality Arizona will be hosting We're Here, We're Queer, Celebrate the New Year with Equality Arizona. This will be taking place at the home of Mark Robert Gordon at 2 West Marshall Avenue in Phoenix. Please RSVP on Eventbrite. On Thursday, January 2nd, from 6 to 9 p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at 3131 East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. From 9.45 p.m., Atlas St. Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Friday, January 3rd, from 6 to 9 p.m., La Liga de Artistas y Creadoras will be hosting the launch events of their month-long exhibit at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore, which is at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. I, along with a number of Phoenix-based artists, will be performing at this launch event. From 7 to 8.30, Peanut Joseph will be hosting Changing Hands Friday Poetry featuring Roxanne Doty with an open mic afterwards. This will be taking place at their Tempe store at 6428 South McClintock Drive. From 7 to 10 p.m., First Friday Poetry on Roosevelt Row will have on-demand typewriter poetry and readings by known and rising poets. This will be taking place on the back porch of Local First Arizona, which is located at 407 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. On Saturday, January 4th, from 7 to 9.30 p.m., Daughter of Zen will be hosting her first Saturday open mic at the Black Cat Coffee House at 4730 East Indian School Road, Suite 120 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Vaughn Rapatahana. Hi, Vaughn. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Kia which means literally in Māori means be well, but it sort of now means hello and greetings. Great. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, Kia really appreciate you coming on. So you brought with you the poem Tahi Kupu Anake, which means only yes. one word. But before yes. we get into that poem, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a New Zealand Māori, mm-hmm. who are the indigenous people of, of this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking to you from the middle of the North Island of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be summer here, but it's pouring down. It's rain outside, oh. bizarrely. My wife and I spend a lot of our time, especially in the New Zealand winter, mm-hmm. which will be your summer in the Northern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. back in the Philippines where she's from and in Hong Kong where our kids are. Oh. So we're always on the move. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of writing across all sorts of genre, mm-hmm. not only poetry. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be invited to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, to take part in World Poetry Recital Night in September, and then in October to Poetry International at the South Bank Centre in London. I was lucky to be invited to go there as well. So we do a fair bit of travelling. In fact, my wife, the teacher's back in Manila right now. Okay. 
you say you write across genres and in many yeah. genres. Uh, how did you get into poetry? As a way of expressing my thoughts and my feelings, I guess it's, it was it was always the way to express myself. Okay. Um, emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and life experiences, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, poetry is a, is, a, is a really good way of, of so doing. Yeah. Did you start writing poetry? Do you remember at what age did you start? I was probably a teenager, but I gave it away for many, many, many years, 20, 30 years. You know, mm-hmm. never really wrote any poetry. Mm-hmm. And I only really restarted again about, uh, what's this? Yes, it's, it's about 13 years ago I restarted to write poetry more seriously. Huh? And as you know, as well as I do, the more you write, the better you are as a poet. Right. Yeah, more practice, definitely. And and also, you're more likely to venture into other forms of poetry. Yes. I'm similar in the way that I also started as a, like a tween, maybe 10, 11. I don't remember exactly when, but then I stopped for about 20 years and I picked it up yes. again yeah. around 2016 on a more okay. steady basis. And in terms of writing in Maori, is that something that you always did or something that you were doing more recently? I've always done it, but a bit like writing poetry, I've improved to the extent now I write mainly in Maori. I, I find myself writing more in Te Maori because Te means language, mm-hmm. Maori language, and I do it in English because I can express myself far better now. Mm-hmm. So... That's, that's developed as well. Yes, and ironically, I get more published in Te Reo Māori overseas than I do in my home country. <laughs> Peculiar. Yeah, sometimes true. it happens that way, right? We have to go away for us to be appreciated. Um, yeah. Um, I think I'm known more, more overseas internationally than I am in my own country. Mm. Partly because I'm, I, I've spent so long overseas. I mean, I lived in Hong Kong for so many years, and as I said, I go back every year. Mm. And I've lived in many other countries. So my last book of poetry, if you don't mind me raving on, was no. published in India. Oh, wow. India this year. Yeah, that's great. By Cyberwits in, in Halahabad, which is the name of the city in India. So my focus is more on overseas publication and, and being known. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you mind telling us a little bit more about this event that took you to London? Poetry from the Edge of Extinction. Ah, That's the, that was the launch of that anthology mm-hmm. of 50 poems written in endangered or threatened tongues mm. by Chris McCabe, who's the chief of the, of the British National Library oh. uh, in the South Bank Centre in London. He also is the custodian of the Endangered Poetry um, Resource, which is tracked down online. We had the launch there, and I, again, I'm raving on. Today, Jacket 2, which is a very well-known American-based University of Pennsylvania poetry site online, has published my commentary piece about the launch. So mm-hmm. if you go to Jacket 2, you will find it there now. It will put on today. Great. That's the link you sent me, right? Right. If you just go to Jacket 2, you will find my commentary link there. So it's actually from the of Extinction. And I've interviewed Chris McCabe, the editor, and I've also interviewed Val Sinsen-Zamort, who's a very well-known Belarusian poet who who works and lives in New York, and mm-hmm. also Laura Pohi, who you will know because she's based in Phoenix, Arizona, and she's an Navajo Poet Laureate. Yes, so exactly. And put into that commentary. There you are. Great, yeah, yeah. And Laura is the person who introduced me to all the people who participated in the yes. event as well. So, yes. Yeah. And she's also on um, BBC Radio 4 being interviewed. I've got the link in my commentary to that. Oh, wow, she that's great. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. I interviewed Laura already, but we didn't get to talk about BBC Four. So if you don't mind reading your poem for us, both the Maori and the English version, then we can talk about it. Okay. Tahi kupu anake. Ki he au ki nui na kaitoranga pōrangi, ki he au ki nui na tangata rawakore, ki he au whakamahana o te au kotumanako te kupu. Ki he au ki nui na pākanga, ki he au o whakakonuka me āpō, ki he au ki te mata e moa o na kararehe, ko tumanako te kupu. Ko tumanako te kupu anaki, ko tumanako te kupu, ko tumanako. That is the poem in, in Te Reo Māori. So tahi kupu anaki, the title means only one word. In a world of many mad politicians, in a world of many destitute people, in a world of global warming, Hope is the word. 
in a world of many wars, in a world of corruption and greed, in a world of the extinction of animals, hope is the word. Hope is the only word. Hope is the word hope. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. One of the things I had wanted to ask you, because you mentioned climate change in your poem, while you live on a land that's large enough, and also you have a lot more land than you had known. I think it was only recently discovered that New Zealand is much larger underneath the waters. But you did have a volcanic eruption recently that was very deadly. So if you can tell us a little bit about how climate change play a part into your poem? Well, climate change is not just an Aotearoa New Zealand phenomenon, it's a world phenomenon. Right. Phenomenon, and it's extremely worrying, right. especially the younger generations are going to be alive long, since, long after I've passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a tremendous concern, it's a, and the greater concern is ignorant politicians who will remain nameless, but one <laughs> of them is presiding over your own fine country. Yes. And complete utter denial of this mm-hmm. um, significant, worrying, threatening phenomenon. Yeah. The world is getting warmer. Mm-hmm. The climate is getting crazy. I mean, as I just said today, it's pouring down here in New Zealand when it's supposed to be the middle of summer. Right. It's quite bizarre weather. So uh, anybody who's in denial of climate change is... is in denial of existence somehow. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I, I think you can understand with our glorious leader <laughs> that, you know, he can afford to be in denial for himself because given his age, you know, he won't, given his wealth, given his the amount of protection he has, he doesn't have to worry. Supposed, supposed wealth. It's supposed well. Well, it, it's it's half a billion, so it's still, you know, decent, good enough. Well, he, cl- he claims that, but of course, we never. When I say we, we in the global community never get access as tax returns to see that's how much he has got in reality. According to the journalist, it's half a billion because he claims to be a billionaire. But we do know for a fact that he was made a millionaire by his father at the tender age of yes. eight. Yes. So, yeah, you know, he... He was literally born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so he's never really had to worry about many things. And now he that yeah. he's the president, he's very well protected. And obviously, because he also seems to lack empathy, he doesn't really understand why other people might be worried about this global yes. phenomenon, as he said. So is that is that what inspire you to write this particular poem or was it something else? No, no. no that was just one aspect. I also wrote about starving people and the death and the extinction of animals and of, and of, and of, of indigenous tongues mm-hmm. and of crazy politicians. All the things I mentioned right. motivated me. So the world is, has gone all right, A-W-R-Y, mm-hmm. markedly so. Yeah, yeah. Increasingly so in, in, in my eyes. So Pumanako, which is Māori for hope, is the word. We must have hope. Mm, yeah, we do have now, to. that poem, and I'll, I'll rave on again a little bit about myself, was recited uh, at the end of November in Geneva at the United Nations Forum on Minority Issues, mm-hmm. um, which is a tremendous honour for me, by Tove Skutnuk-Tangas, who is a very well-known linguist, mm-hmm. which included my that poem in Geneva to that forum, the United Nations Forum. Again, she sees the world as in disarray and hope is one of the few things we can cling to. So on that jacket to commentary post, I put the link to her, her speech at the United Nations as well, including that poem. Great. This is a sort of a related aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's really important to know that because even though New Zealand is quite a large bit of landmass, but it's still an island, but island nations, especially Polynesian islands, Marshall Islands, for in- instance. I've been there. I used to live in Nauru, so I've been to Marshall mm. so I know it well. Yeah, and they're disappearing. They're, you know. Tell me about it. Yeah. I know. And, and that's one of the things that, as somebody who's living in the U.S., we don't appreciate as much uh, the changes that right. global warming is bringing to 
many populations around the world, including our own. We have disappearing land as well. In Louisiana, apparently, something like a football field of land disappears every few minutes. I don't even remember exactly, but it's it's really alarming at an alarming rate. Still, you know, we're one of the largest countries in the world. Even though we're now seeing it more, we can, quote-unquote, still be in denial about it. Whereas other countries, especially in the Polynesian uh, islands, is seeing it as an imminent threat in this generation. Granted, Kiribati and Tuvalu are also going steadily underwater. Yeah, you know, as, uh, yeah exactly. But we, outside of, of continental landmass of the USA, are well aware of it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people in the U.S. who are not in denial are also very, very well aware of it. It's, it's, you know, the news is plastered everywhere about these things. At the same time, because we're not being affected directly, we're still, you know, in in our old habits. We're still practicing our old habits. We're we're still going on about life as if it was. The same good old days. Yeah, use up the petrol, use up all the petroleum. Yeah. The big cars. Yes, yes. Ex- exactly. And with the current leader that we have, who's a protectionist for big businesses and for oil yeah. businesses, and they're not thinking about the future, they're still thinking about how to line their own pockets as of now. Yes. Um, That's what I said corruption and greed. That's what I also talk about in that poem. Yeah, yeah. Going back to writing this particular poem in Maori, why this particular subject and why Maori for this particular subject? Well, I think, as I said before, I'm very concerned about global issues, mm-hmm. not just climate change, but the, all the other ones I mentioned. So that's, that's why. So I was giving some a way to counter this, which is hope or monarchical. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it in my own language because I feel it more strongly. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So the emotional expression is closer to the Pero Māori than English. Mm-hmm. English being the voice of corruption and greed mm. and consumerism and capitalism and digging up shale in the United States and closing down national parks in the United States. That's all English land. Okay. It's the enemy in many ways. Mm-hmm. So I had to write another language. Mm. Um, one, of, one, of my, one of my books is actually well, this is a non-fiction book about, about language called English Languages Hydra, H-Y-D-R-A, mm-hmm. in 2012, and nothing to do with poetry, mm. but as a polemic against the way the English language is like the Hydra, you know, the myth, mm-hmm. myth of the yeah. Hydra? Mm-hmm. You chop off one of its heads and six more exponentially grow and right. take over even further, and they are the ones decimating indigenous tongues, which goes back to poems from the edge of extinction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the push for English language into, into areas that, in countries that don't even need English, they don't even use it traditionally or now. So there you go. Yeah. And a bit of a polemic about that tongue as well, which again answers your question, which is why I write the Māori. Mm. And it's also, I mean, English has become the language of yes. colonialism. Yes, very much. Deliberately, yeah. deliberate colonialism, and neo-colonialism, it's because it's still being pushed mm-hmm. by agents like the British Council and things like that, all of which I've written about in that Jacket 2 post. So mm. if all listeners, I urge to, to click on the Jacket 2 and read that post with all the links I'm mentioning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the British Council is still trying to make money sending out templates, requests for templates to make more money and, and, and stress their own culture and grow it. Mm-hmm. The detriment of indigenous tongues and people who don't even need English. Right, right. I was in a small discussion on Twitter with people when one of the Nigerian movies was pulled from the foreign Oscars category because it was mainly in English. Majority of it was in English, so it disqualified the film. And obviously that really ruffled a lot of feathers because people feel like, well, you forced us into adapting your language, but now you are disqualifying us from entering into a category. Again, it's one of your cultural hegemonies, like a manifestation of that. But you're you're excluding us from participating in this price yeah. when when we're using most of it. So there's a lot of frustration there because sometimes for, you know, a country 
um, or a modern country that might cross many tribal nations' lands, like in Africa, for instance. English has become, or another colonial language like French, have become the lingua franca of how different tribal nations communicate with each other. So it serves a purpose at the same time, as you pointed out, there is a continual colonizing aspect about the language because, yeah, how people speak, how a language is structured, uh, reflects how people think as well. Well, It's cultures ingrained in the tongue. Anna Will Speaker, a very well-known Polish linguist, wrote a book in 2016, I think, or 14, um, imprisoned by English. So the actual words of Anglo-English contain cultural nuances that aren't in other tongues. So the more that the English, Anglo-English dominates is the loss of the cultural nuances, different ones in the, in the tongues that English is replacing. Mm-hmm. So it's dangerous, perfidious. Yeah, and it's also because a lot of idioms come from, you know, different cultural norms. And we often speak much more in idioms than we realize. Yes. Do you mind me asking you a question, Imogen? You, you write in English, though. Yeah. I write in English and I write uh, in French. I'm also okay. trying. I just did a collaboration with a Mexican poet. And so we wrote both in English and Spanish. Okay. Going back to uh, Maori, I wanted to find out from you. Is this something that you have learned? Did you grow up bilingual, or is this something that you pick up later on in life? A bit of both, but more as time went on. And when I went to school, which is in the middle of, almost the middle of last century, Māori was not even offered in New Zealand schools. Mm-hmm. It had been a deliberate program by our colonial masters, the English mm-hmm. or the British, to suppress the Tarao Māori. It only started to regenerate in the 70s. The 80s, it only became an official tongue of this country in 1987. Wow. And I just, I just picked it up more and more and more. Then I, I spoke it more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And I went teaching it mm-hmm. back in the 80s and the 90s and become more and more uh, proficient in it. Right. So it's developed, developed. Right. I always had some, of course. And now I would say it's at least as good as my English. And of course, as I said earlier, my wife is Filipino. Mm-hmm. My stepchildren are. Uh, half Chinese, their first language is Cantonese, their second language Mandarin. Mm-hmm. We don't speak English. We get together. Oh, wow. Wait, so you speak so, Cantonese or Mandarin as well? I, I, I can speak both because, as I said, I lived in Hong Kong so long. I'm a permanent resident of Hong Kong anyway. Ah. I also spent time in China where mm-hmm. I had to learn Mandarin because no one spoke English back mm-hmm. at the beginning of the century when I was living there. Right, right, yeah. I, I think most most Chinese probably still don't speak English. Some more learned uh, people do some. More do now, I would think, Imogen, than back, back about nearly 20 years ago when I was living in Chicago, up in the northwest. Right. Very few spoke English. Right. So you had to speak Mandarin if you wanted to catch a taxi or find some food or something. You had to learn <laughs> very quickly. It was, it was a crash course. Yeah, it's kind of out of necessity, right? And in a way, it's in that necessity that it helps you to learn that language better. But, you know, I was surprised when you said, you know, you learned in Hong Kong. But I mean, living in China and learning it, I understand. But I find a lot of expats do not learn local language, uh, at least in Hong Kong. No, well, Cantonese, because as I said, my family is is Cantonese speaking. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm... Because of my background and the way I think, I, I think it's the onus is on us to speak in the, the tongues that, of the places we're living in rather than push English onto them. Right. Even though the irony was I was an English teacher there. So <laughs> that was the irony. My right. family didn't need English even though they had English teachers at their respective schools mm. trying to drum it into them. They had no need for it. So, and I'm going to talk about myself again, on that link, the jacket too, there's a link to me reading my poem Tongues, T-O-N-G-W-S, Kuala Lumpur in September, where I'm expressing exactly that same sentiment, that we, the visitors, or the, the newly arrived, should learn that the local, the indigenous tongues of the place we've gone, we've gone to, and not force our language onto them. Right, uh, right. Poems Tagalog, which is one of my wife's first languages, the language of the Philippines, which I speak, 
Mm. And it's got Mandarin, it's got Māori sprinkles through it. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the questions I was going to ask you in terms of Māori is now that you speak it um, about at the same level as English, do you find the culture feed into certain linguistic practices? Do you have any anecdotes about those? Well, our Māori reo or kuku, as a term, contain cultural attributes, yes, which are fairly alien to many non-Māori, i.e. Western, i.e. Caucasian culture. Mm. We have words like kaitiak, which you can translate to guardian, but it's much more than just being a guardian. It's, it's a protector. It's a, a gift we should all have to look after our natural environment, be kaitiaki, guardians of that environment. Mm. So it's, it's wider and different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same in, in, in other languages that have uh, words that summarize cultural aspects that aren't available to other languages and other cultures. Right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm somewhat multilingual as well. It sounds like you're much more fluent in many other languages. Yeah. I lived in Brunei for five years as well, you see. So I learned Malay, which is similar to Māori and similar to Tagalog. Mm. Many words are actually exactly the same. The vowel mm. pronunciation is the same. Right. So I can right. speak Malay and Tagalog and Māori with connection. And my wife's first tongue is Kapamhangan, which is even closer to Māori. Her and I share several words identical. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted what you were going to say. Oh, sorry. It's, um, I, what do I want to say? I kind of forgot. <laughs> oh, okay. So are you going to read your poem to me? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I still have some questions for you. Okay, and go for it. Yeah. I, oh, here, that's the question that came back to me. So as a multilingual speaker... Do you find the same thing that I, I also encounter, which is sometimes when you're speaking to somebody, just in the middle of whatever a conversation, you suddenly your mind will offer you a word in a language that's different from the language that you're using to carry on this conversation, yes. and yes. you feel like especially this. If, especially if you're tired. Yes, but you feel like that's the only word. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you get time to think about it. You feel like that is the only word that can convey that concept. Yes. I agree with you. Yes, I've had that experience. Yeah. I understand. Yes. Yeah. And you have to kind of stop and you have to let your mind kind of regroup. Yes. And think how you can continue this conversation um, using this imperfect language that you have to use. <laughs> yes. I know, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah. That's happened to me a few times. Yeah. And and it's really interesting that, you know, um, we have these choices, right, that often people who are uh, monolingual or even bilingual do not necessarily have. And, you know, scientific studies even shown over the more recent years that just studying just a second language is very helpful for the brain. It's very w- good oh, for yes. intellectual development. 100% agree. You're, saying, you're, you're preaching to the converted here, yes. Yeah, and 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 so I wish people will understand that, especially speaking from an American point of view, because, again, there is such a resurgence of this, you know, rah-rah, America first, uh, therefore no other language is allowed and so forth. The English first movement. It's, 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 in Arizona, is not so... Great, I don't think. I think there's a fairly strong American uh, English first movement there, isn't there, or am I wrong? I'm pretty new to Arizona, so and I'm not in. Yeah. Although I know some teachers, I don't know entirely the you know the formal education system and what they're pushing at the moment. So I'll have to ask those people I know in the in the education system about that. But I feel like, because yep. There was a there was a follow up to what um, English language Hydra we did at in two thousand sixteen called Why English Confronting the Hydra. So that was the follow up book, mm-hmm. and one of the contributors to that was a lady from Arizona called Aja Martinez, aka mm-hmm. Martinez. I don't know if you've met her as yet. I'm pretty sure she's Phoenix based as well. Okay. She wrote about the English first movement and how very hard it was to have her own native tongue even accepted. Hmm. Personally, I haven't really encountered it, but, you know, I don't, 
in my daily life, I speak English, so that could be why that I haven't really encountered that as well. But I know, I know this is a sentiment that exists, and there are people in the government even trying to push to codify English as the official language because in America there's actually no official language. But it's always interesting to know that, you know, what we as human beings rationalize sometimes is actually counter our own mental health or our own well-being, like like this forcing one language and also denying climate change. Yes. So the poem that I actually sent you talked about that word as well. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I picked it because it's about words, and your poem made me think of it. I I have a few poems about words, and this is one of the ones that I thought, especially because of the title, would be a good poem to read with. So you 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 will read it. Yeah, I'm going to read it now. It's called Significance. So significance. Some words are forgettable, like the sweet nothings whispered by a passing lover. Some words stick like tree sap, encasing defining moments, waiting for time to change their value. Some words burrow like insects under the skin, seeking food and lodging for morsels of one's soul. Your words are apparitions, mere projections that only look real for hiding true intentions. My words are solid foundations upon which my character stands steady and at the ready. Some words shoot straight through, leaving you to contend with the missing parts they took. Some words are magic carpets, transporting the imagination to impossible heights and spaces. Some words whip the listeners, smarting their sensibilities and making them take notice. Your words are bookends, standing back to back, leaving no room for knowledge. My words carry wisdom from ancient texts derived, relayed through the generations. Very good. And full of metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> and some similes. So the two things I picked up were the, the imagery conveyed by the excellent metaphors and by a few similes in this world. That's one thing I, I picked up because mm. each 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 stanza is, is either either a, a, a simile like the very first one. Some mm-hmm. words are forgettable, like this week, nothing was by a passing other. And but the, the dominant one is the metaphor. You know? mm. Your words are apparitions. That was one thing I, I commented on. So you were conscious when you wrote it that you were writing lots of metaphors and and, and, and similes. I don't know that when I write that I'm that deliberate. Often I'm not. I do try to write imagery that's not as often used by myself or by other people as possible. Yes. One of the things I, I kind of wince about a little bit is the stanza about magic carpets. I was just like, ah, you know, like I feel like that's so used. And Yeah, but cliched before. Yeah, exactly. I try not to, but I can't remember exactly why I wrote this. I do, I do know. Well, I I can't remember exactly what made me write this particular poem. I do know the why, which is again, I have gone through some trauma regarding friends, regarding betrayal. I was going to say that that leads to my second question. This is this is directed at another person. A, a, in a relationship you've had of some sort of relationship. Yeah, yeah. The, the you doesn't come across very nicely. No. It's a nice person. <laughs> no. Yeah. Your yeah. words are and standing back to back, leaving no room for knowledge. So that one and the other one is your words are apparitions, mere projections that only look real for hiding through intent. This wasn't directed at your president of the of, of United States, was it? No. Really to him as no, I, I mean that's, it definitely applies to him, uh, but you it's know. A joke, I'm saying that, of course, Imogen, but I mean he, he <laughs> would address him very well. <laughs> yeah, I have written poems about him. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, very angry poems, <laughs> and right. you know, it certainly doesn't surprise me that this particular poem does apply to him because he's so lacking in so many ways. So it's kind of easy. 
your words is directed at someone else that you've had, had a bit of trouble with. Yeah, um, yeah. That, so, that triggered the poem, I guess. Again, it's not. It was not an immediate trigger, but it was okay. about people that I've interacted with before whose betrayal caused me a lot of trauma and it's something that I've been trying to heal from. This is quite an angry tone to your poem, actually. Oh, yeah, this this one is pretty mild, actually. (laughs) Oh, okay. You should hear some of the other ones. (laughs) What about the title? What is the significance of significance? It's that. It's to say that, you know, different words have significance. And... Oh, okay. Yeah. I usually name poems, and I imagine this I did as well. I name poems afterwards. That's my tendency, and I... Gotcha. Yeah, and sometimes I don't have the name right away, and sometimes it comes later on. And each stanza is a way that words can affect us. Words can be what used. What about the last stanza, where it says from ancient text? Was it supposed to be ancient or just ancient? Um, I think it's supposed to be ancient. I think it might no. be a typo. When I was reading it, I skipped the S. <laughs> yeah. That's from ancient texts, right? So what are these ancient texts? That's what I'm interested in as well. Where did you, the words gain wisdom from ancient texts? But I'm not quite sure what text you're alluding to. Not anything in particular. Oh, okay. But it's more like a separation of the you character and my me character. And, and gotcha. to really to contrast these two characters in the poem you know, one, yes. one who speaks in very ethereal language, but really meaningless, yes. you know, say nice things. The you character in where words are apparitions is almost like a repetition of the first stanza where it's like yes. sweet nothing, nothings from lovers. Yes. In contrast to somebody whose word you can count on, whose word you, you can take to the bank, as it were. Yes. Same for the last bit where is to really distance the two characters where one doesn't even allow knowledge to come in. They're very deterministic words. They're very maybe accusatory words, maybe prejudicial words, whereas the other one is more about having studied, having reflected, having thought over things that and studied, again, other people's wisdom as well. Why no punctuation? You know, it's weird not because... That it, not, not that it matters, but, but I just noticed there's nothing there at all. Yeah, I used to write punctuation, and not long ago, but more recently, I decided to forego them. I feel like it just becomes cleaner, and I yes. let the line breaks be the punctuation now. That's fine. Yeah. Um, Once in a while, like the poem I worked on with the Mexican poet, there are some punctuation. Sometimes it's needed, sometimes... There's some visual aspects of the poem where it just doesn't look nice to just break right away if you need a comma to break between two concepts. But yeah, more and more now I just don't use punctuation. Fair enough. Yeah. It could be laziness as well. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I don't think it's laziness. <laughs> just the way you feel about the poem. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have any other questions about your poem. I mean, it's fairly straightforward with all due respect to you. It's angry, as I said before. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of resentment and anger and the feeling of distance between the two characters. Have you managed to send this poem to this other person or give it to them? Uh, no, no. This is not a person I want to have any contact with. Oh, okay. uh, actually, people that I don't want to have contact with. Okay, fair so enough. Fair it's more self-soothing or self-therapy writing yes. these poems. Which is why we write poems. You asked me why I write again. That's right. It's 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 catharsis, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because sometimes you know the relationship doesn't allow you to have the conversation that you want to have. I think we're lucky in that we have this ability to write something that's artistic that can express what we want to express and other people can read it. Another way of expressing it is performing it. So this this poem would come across very well as a performance, which you could read. Do you do readings? Uh, Live readings, sorry? 
I do. I have been doing some live readings. I don't know if you saw on Poets and Muses, there's a events page. You know, it's a, it's a uh, combination. Okay. Yeah, it's a combination of if I do events that involves other poet guests okay. that I, I've tried to organize together that features them or events where I'm reading or conferences where I'm marketing poets and muses. I announced those events um, on that particular page. So um, the significance would come across very well in a live reading. I think you could express your venom quite well. I think <laughs> definitely. I've been doing that. I'm lucky in that in Phoenix there is a lot of, uh, and also the surrounding areas. There are a lot of poetry events, not just poetry okay. performance events from uh, well-known poets, but also open mics where a poet like myself can just go and read my poetry or even perform my poetry. I'm not sure if I read this particular poem. I, I'm pretty prolific. I write, well, I was writing almost on a daily basis, but because I'm doing the podcast, I don't have time to do that now. So I, but I write, I think, at least once a week, if not more. You write a lot in different genres as well. Do you, yes. do you write every day? Is that a habit that you have? Well, I'm retired now, I'm retired, so yes, I, I do write every day. So yesterday, I sent off the jacket two-piece, which is, as I said, it's now online. Mm -hmm. And today I did a book review of a, of a Māori poet, mm -hmm. which I'm just, I'm just finishing off, which I'll send off after this phone call, after I take my dog for a walk, who's hanging around outside looking at me saying, why are you taking me for a walk? <laughs> so I'm feeling guilty about my dog staring at me through the, through the front door. Um, and tomorrow I will freshen up another chapter and send it off for another book to do with English language critique. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always got things on the go. And I also am lucky that I take part in writers in school scheme in New Zealand where we, uh, we, we when I say we are writers, go to schools and we have workshops that say poetry or things like that, which I find really rewarding, mm -hmm. not just financially, but professionally, you know. And right. I, I really enjoy teaching poetry or getting kids to write poetry and read it back to me mm -hmm. and just schools at, at all levels, high school, junior high school, intermediate schools, primary schools or elementary schools, mm -hmm. right through. So yeah. I, I do that as well. So I'm not always stuck in the house writing right. or taking my dog for a walk or supposedly doing that. Um, <laughs> I'm, out, I'm actually out in the community. And I've also edited several books. So I've got another launch coming up on Saturday and about an hour's drive from here of a anthology of Waikato poets, Waikato being that region I live in, mm -hmm. and it never been a Waikato anthology before, so I edited it, we're having launches of it now. Great. So, Is there a lot of poetry? Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, you, you thought? <laughs> no, you don't. Is there a lot of poetry events around where you live? No, I live in a very isolated area in the middle of the North Island. Mm. Um, there's a lot of poetry in, in the cities, and I'm invited to a lot of events, so I have to travel to them. Mm. I, I give re I've got readings coming up in Hamilton and in the Wairararapa uh, early next year, and probably back in Auckland later in the year. So where I live, no, but there are in bigger centres. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's a resurgence of poetry in the last few years. And, well, since I only got back to it in 2016, and you've been at it a lot longer than me, do you feel that as well? I don't know. Uh, it's been a resurgence, but there's definitely a bigger variety. You've got raps, you've got poetry slams, you've got lots of prose poetry now is a, is a big, big thing right. in this country. Yeah. Which is still poetry, but it's in a prose form. And a lot of people are writing prose poetry and, and being published primarily in that genre. Yeah, I have some so, prose poems as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So poetry's growing. Yeah. So it's resurgent, but it's. it's, it's Expanded, or that's the right, right word. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was a Guardian article recently about how popular poetry has become, okay. but I think they were talking about more in Britain. Yes. Like I said, because I've only gone back in the last couple of years, I don't feel like I can speak more comprehensively about it. But anyway, I felt like there is a connection between our poems in that hope is the word because of its significance. Yes. And again, it's about how words can be used for both good and for bad or anything in between. Yes. And 
do you think, obviously, we need to have hope at the same time, our conditions are such that we need to be doing things? Oh, 100% agree. But at least you have hope to start with, won't do anything. Right, right. You don't have hope, you have to state, and that means an action. Yeah. And it means they win. Yeah. And the day is not even necessarily other people, but rather just conditions. Yes. And conditions that aren't, aren't being acted on, that has been let lie, you know? Right. To, like the climate, go back to that, that hasn't been acted on. And so it's affecting now physically, as you said, island states, particularly in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, how- not as, I mean, Marshall Islands were decimated by the Americans anyway in the Second World War bombing. Right. Nuclear tests, which the USA has never really admitted up to and done, done enough uh, recompense for. So, yeah, yeah. Just ignorance and lack of, lack of action. So, all the more reason to have hope bring about action. Yeah. Well, what is New Zealand doing on the national level or even the regional level in terms of... On the national level, we've got a very strong policy. We've got a, a young female leader. Yes. Prime Minister who's very proactive in climate change, action and activity. I would say New Zealand's one of the leading countries in the world that's got a, a, an active approach to... That's my dog barking outside. Saying, woo, woo. Uh, an active approach to overcoming... You can hear him? Mm. He's barking at me. We've got a very uh, proactive climate change policy to try and keep our levels down, right. pollution levels down, and look after the environment, just yeah. that the rest of the world isn't keeping up with us. Yeah, yeah. I think every every country counts, even though obviously both the U.S. and China are very huge emitters um, by virtue of our size and in terms of U.S., it's more just how much we all consume on a per capita basis. U.S. and, and Russia and China and Brazil are all in denial, and Australia, believe it or not, our near neighbor. Yes, yes, I've, I've heard about that. Fortunately, Britain's is not doing that, even though they're certainly leaning more to the right politically. At least they're, doing, they're not doing that. The, <laughs> so you have to take him then. Sorry. Should we should we conclude, or do you need to take the? Yeah, I, I better take him because he's giving me a hard time. He's, he's he's you can hear him. He's 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 going woo 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 woo. Saying after my walk time, and why are you talking around that phone? <laughs> All right. That's Bruno, my dog. So is that okay, Imogen? Have we covered enough territory? I think so. I mean, we can certainly keep talking, but I don't want your dog to suffer. But I do need to conclude with some just concluding questions, which is, um, where can people go find you reading, for instance, what events you have coming up that you would recommend people go to see you read? In New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. I have have listeners all over the place, so. I'll be reading at the Mercury Theatre in Hamilton early next year, and I'll be reading in Masterton. I understand early next year. I haven't got the dates right with me at the moment. Okay. But there's two confirmed readings early next year while I'm in this country. Great. Then when I go back to Hong Kong, I'll be reading it uh, poetry out loud mm-hmm. in central Hong Kong later in the year. Right, right. Oh, and of course, I'm going to Romania in July to read at the poetry festival there. Wow. Several days in the middle of July in Romania. That's great. So I've been a Invited to go to that poetry festival. Great. So I'll be in Nottingham also in July at the Colin Wilson Convention because I'll be giving a paper there. Nothing to do with poetry, but I did my doctorate in the works of Colin Wilson, an English writer. Mm-hmm. So that's another genre I write a lot. Mm. And since you don't have all the dates confirmed yet, can people find those on your website? I don't have a website. You don't? I thought you did. I, I, I could have swore I saw you. I, I, I have a New Zealand Book Council website that they write about me that I that they update. Ah. I don't update. Ah. Well, what I can do is send you that link, Imogen, and also find the dates of the of the of the different readings I've got. Send it to you via email. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Besides that website, do you have social media or things like that? that no, I. So I don't have my own website deliberately because mm-hmm. I can't be bothered. <laughs> that's laziness. And I, I'm 
I, I don't have anything like Twitter or, or Facebook because they're CIA mandated spy sites. But I'm being a little bit facetious here. Again, I can't be bothered. I'm not really interested in <laughs> talking about myself online. Mm. I haven't got the energy or the desire. But I've never, ever been a social media person. Mm. So is the best way for people to reach you via your email then? Yeah. That's about the only way. Okay. Yes. And are you okay with me linking your name? Because I can I can link it on the newsletter when I announce our episode uh, to your email. Is that fine? I'm not so sure about that. I'll have to think about that and get back to you. Okay. I don't have the energy to really talk to people so much on email. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. It's up to you. Um, just let me know. I, think at this stage, I prefer not to have that link for my email. So, okay. But what I will do is send you that BC New Zealand Book Council link about me, which has got lots of other links to me reading and you know pictures of me reading and stuff. Great. Plus confirmed dates I've got here in New Zealand and in Romania that have, that have come up. Wonderful. Sounds Another good. Day. Yeah, and I can put that in the episode notes so people can yeah. look at that. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time you're taking. And please pet your dog for me and say sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out and fight the rain and I'll take him for a walk. And I'll say thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm sorry I have to go, but I better, I better take him for a walk. Yes, so, good. And if you can look up that jacket too, commentary, a lot of what I said today will be revealed on that and all the links there, including to Laura on Radio 4. Great, great. As I mentioned during our interview, you can find the dates to Juan's upcoming events in the episode notes. So please check that out. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or on the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and New Year's. And I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.